Shallow words bring nothing new. Shallow words bring nothing new. It could suck. Everyone, so uh, welcome back to Superstructure. Uh, we have a special guest for you today. We have uh, Dan Berger, who is associate professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington. And um, welcome to the show, Dan. So nice to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So, reason why, among many, uh, that we want to have you on the show is first off. You're a fan, so that's a good start. <laughs> yeah, fan, um, fans always uh, yeah. get the guest option. J- just kidding. We actually do have other fans. I'm not sure. If yeah, them on the show. that's how I became a co-host. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had to get an early like natty if you really wanted to. Uh, um, but among other things, you write on um, the history of prison abolition and prison organizing. Um, as well as a couple recent pieces sort of in the wake of the George Floyd protests that we wanted to ask you about and also hear sort of perhaps a, a, some meta reflections about the sort of state of abolitionism um, in the United States and in this new moment in light of some of the questions that we're asking on this podcast. A few light questions, just a few <laughs> light reflections about... That's right. um, Definitely things that we can all solve in the span of one podcast episode. We we famously don't mediate anything with theory, so we just uh, we're we're known as the podcast that's just indexical imprints yeah. of facts uh, with with nothing nothing in between. Yeah, you'll come away with a lot of facts about abolitionism that then you can write about how they are not really feasible. Um, maybe you'll get published somewhere, but. Um, <laughs> I, not the intercept anymore yeah. uh, somewhere else maybe uh, i sort of wanted to kick things off maybe to like read some of your work to for our listeners to introduce some of it and i thought no better place to start than a recent piece you wrote with a friend of mine david stein who uh happens to have been the first guest on money on the left the other podcast some some have called this podcast a spin-off of money on the left so uh you know keeping, like keeping in like the family that. here yeah that sounds cool or the surplus. Yeah. 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 so this is titled what is and what could be the policies of abolition for um the kaepernick publishing uh group and also level on medium and so get ready to hear your your and david's words so <laughs> thinking about defunding the police and prison abolition generally, you both write, the call to defund is best understood as an effort to revoke the political and economic power of police and of the larger criminal legal system it upholds. And then I'm I'm gonna skip around here. It is both a defensive posture and a visionary one, right? Prison abolition and the, the defunding mode. Abolitionists have long operated at this intersection of opposing what is and fighting for what could be. Abolition is and has always been a slate of affirmative demands for the world we need. The struggles to defund the police and decarcerate prisons are wholly intertwined with other efforts to transform society. Medicare for all, a job guarantee, and a homes guarantee are battles for a humane and ecologically just budget, as are efforts to release aging people in prison and close detention centers. 
The Green New Deal is or could be an abolitionist project. The Red New Deal certainly is. While many of those policy goals can only be fully achieved at the federal level, that spirit animates local and state battles, which is where most spending on police and prisons take place. Abolition fights for the world that should be. And I wanted to start with this and to hear sort of your reflections on this, because I think what you're spelling out and on our reading really marks what one could call a break in a sort of left, and particularly in the American context, sort of organizing logic. And mm-hmm. I want to hear you potentially talk about this um, in in that vein and, and sort of what, what you think and how you would want to frame these words that, that you wrote. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for that. Um, and, um, you know, I was joking on, on Twitter with somebody about trying to, people were, you know, retweeting the article with different passages and I wanted people to guess who, which ones I wrote and which ones David wrote. <laughs> but um, but why don't you acknowledge this is obviously, I mean, as you said at the outset, this is a co-authored project. This is mm-hmm. like a, a product of, of David and I thinking together over many years, um, but also more broadly, a sort of collective thinking of, of various projects that we've um, been a part of or been influenced by and been been in conversation with. And so in, in some sense, I don't, I don't know that it's 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 a total break, right? Because I think part of what mm. we're trying to do is sort of draw out this this tradition that exists, right? And that there is this like yeah. very clear kind of abolitionist legacy. Um, I think it's a it's a break from certain certain kinds of orthodoxy, right? <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of left or- left organizers who who would differentiate themselves from a kind of Alinsky style model of organizing um, that is just Mm -hmm. organizing in a sort of almost in a non-political way (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. uh, versus a sort of a left organizing model that has a kind of you know broader sort of structural political analysis um but i think that that still sort of operates in the world that that exists uh, about sort of what what is realistic or what is feasible and so on um and i think that part of what abolition demands is a kind of or or maybe not demands but what it what it enables right is a sort of broader um a broader attachment to liberation um that that uh, is is expansive in its in its sense of the world, um, but but also very connected to the kinds of actions that we can take directly today. Um, and I think part of what we were trying to tease out is is you know that that even the utopian dimensions of abolition are not are not utopian in a like Im- impossible sort of way, um, but that they are actually things that that people struggle over day in day out as we fight over the allocation of resources in society um and so i think abolitionists have have um have have recognized the centrality of of budgets right something we talked a lot about in that piece as like moral Mm -hmm. and political documents um and certainly you know that that comes from a lot of the civil rights movement and other kind of um black radical labor organizing um but i think it's that that sort of fusion uh i mean not <laughs> not not to regurgitate the title right but i think that, that that sort of fusion of what is with what could be um is is, is yeah. something that we wanted to really articulate both as a kind of abolitionist um 
vision, but also as an abolitionist strategy, right? That the sense of the kinds of interventions that could be made in the short and medium term to help get us toward the long term. Yeah, I love uh, especially the your your use of the word like enable, uh, like that abolition enables a, a certain kind of forward looking visioning, because I, I think that one of the things we've been teasing out on this podcast and uh, the way in which we read uh, modern monetary theory and the importance of uh, money's sort of boundless uh, capacity is that fundamentally spending is is about envisioning. And there's a certain way in which uh, some Marxist discourses, I think, can tend to reduce politics to a zero-sum distributional conflict that is importantly embedded in the present tense, right? Um, there's, and you get this with their critiques of abolition as being, you know, sort of pie in the sky or not engaged with what's materially in the present tense, in the here and now. Um, and what I think this ignores is, you know, we would say it naturalizes or it reifies uh, decisions that were made in the past that were envisioning decisions that led to this present right now. And what I think is um, is so important to uh, the legacy of abolitionism and of uh, this combination of like talking about budgeting, but not in like a, you know, let's balance the budget kind of way, but budgeting yeah. <laughs> as like a record of what we're envisioning is that it, it points to uh, a way that we can, instead of reifying what was decided by capitalists in the past, we can decide right now what we will be building in the future. Um, and I, I would love to, to continue to tease that out. I mean, that, the title alone just like, you know, jumped out at me in that way. Yeah, no, th thanks for that. I mean, I, I think it really is, you know, that the, the fights around um, around budget and, and including things like, you know, ca campaigns we, we mentioned in the piece, like re release aging people in prison, which is a campaign in New York State, um, which, you know, has been around for several years, but but whose messaging and framework has, I think, taken a added urgency in the pandemic where obviously uh, older people are subject you know far more uh, in danger of of contracting covid and dying from covid um you know even just that that framing right uh get, gets us to to um, an immediate sort of moral sense of why why do we have people in their 70s 80s and 90s in prison right why why are people being sentenced to 500 right. years in prison um and and the kinds of you know rethinking and reimagining that's possible when we when we frame it in those ways right and i think these kinds of like budget fights and these kinds of humanitarian fights as you were saying, like they're not—they're not these kind of technocratic, um, you know, spreadsheet yeah. fights. Um, they're fights about the kind of world that we want to live in, uh, and I think they—they they sort of shine, you know, shine a light on that pretty quickly. Um, and so people can start to really either reimagine the attachments to policing and prison that we are being fed or can give voice to the opposition to policing and prison that has already, that has been sort of deeply felt, right? Usually through personal experience, um, but, but that we can actually see a way out of, a way out of this kind of repression. 
Can I just uh, jump in that uh, on a slightly different note, uh, I always uh, teasing Max that I want to get a Borges quote in uh, from the Zahir, but because uh, he says uh, it's like a very like not the type of monetary thinking we want, but like part yes, but he says it's uh, a coin could be a, a panoply of all possible futures and that money is future time, you know, and it's like envisioning the budget is about thinking in terms of the possible futures we can have and do we want those futures to have people who are yeah 90 and in prison yeah that's an option you know yep, right. we can see that exactly <laughs> well and i do this yeah. actively with my students sometimes of saying like okay the year is like you know how, like how do we think today about 2050 right or or even 2030 mm -hmm. right um and and like what what is a what does a carceral system like look like in five years and ten years and fifty years if we have it in in, in that time frame? Um, and at first they always you know sort of bristle at that assignment of like how can we how can we do that? That's impossible. But like that's exactly what the state does, yeah. right? The state looks at its current <laughs> like who's incarcerated. Mm -hmm. It looks at um, at the current sort of array of its sort of political economic priorities and then makes a plan to build new prisons or expand prisons or close prisons, right? And and we we can't have the the state be the only one who's sort of operating in that sort of future time. Yeah, and like even even expanding uh this this sense of what we consider to be the state planning. Um one of the things that that I think we want to develop more on this podcast is the public dimensions of forms of economic planning that are usually considered to be private. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talk about, obviously, with mass incarceration, this is a lot of state planning. But critically, when, when anybody who has money is in a position uh, like that, that person is legally empowered to make m big macro planning decisions that will decide who has a job, what will get produced, you know, et cetera. Um, and importantly, what, what, the abolition, uh, what the abolition framework like insists on is that uh, those decisions are working in tandem with the state, uh, with the state decisions, right? And so like, we don't wanna just, we don't wanna naturalize the public-private distinction mm -hmm. because ultimately, everybody as as an actor who can spend money is legally articulated in some way uh and and i think that um on the left we can sometimes forget this in in certain discourses uh, obviously i'm you know thinking of marxism here uh that um thinks of economic planning well doesn't think of economic planning thinks of uh accumulation through history accumulation and its discontents <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um just a little doug henwood tidbit yeah little <laughs> <trivia>. <laughs> yeah this naturalized uh process of accumulation as history that there's this sense of like well, what does your planning have to do with it? We either materially can care for everybody or we materially can't. And, you know, the, the point is that we could make decisions today to materially care for everybody tomorrow. Um, and and that's, that's actually not like a, you know, like we have to wait for the technology dialectic to catch up with including everybody. <laughs> you know, like we can just like, do that. Yeah. Um, the technology dialect. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, just overdosing on, on <laughs> shitty Marxist buzzwords. 
<laughs> right. Well, and I, and I think we see that. Um, yeah, I mean, not not to not not to keep coming back to to the state, but I I just think that mm -hmm. this moment of, around the pandemic has been so um, has been so gruesome, right? Because we just see like the you know sort of liberal governors as much as conservative governors just abandon incarcerated people and others t uh, to the pandemic, um, and so like we could actually free like everyone in prison tomorrow right <laughs> like i mean there's not mm -hmm. like you know a central button that like oh, oh, you know f closes all prisons immediately but like governors actually have you know tremendous pardoning and clemency power like people could actually be released and instead of like dying from a pandemic in a in a prison cell um and and the and there's like just a failure of political will to do that 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 gets sort of regurgitated as as some other kind of barrier, right? Like it can't be done. Um, and I think I think what abolition speaks obviously sort of most immediately to um, to to the the state's failure, right? And the state's sort of um, sort of punishment drive, right? But it also speaks yeah. to to a failure of those on the left who who would believe that <laughs> idea right, right. Um, who would get mm -hmm. stuck in that right that we can only talk about nonviolent drug offenders or or you know we, we can't deal with prisons at all because it's too complicated or you know fill, fill in the blank for whatever the reason is for for avoiding that kind of engagement or that that we need prisons for pedophiles and capitalists right, right. exactly you <laughs> yeah. see this sometimes yeah. right. with you know Max, like, yeah. you know, Chapo has said it and Truanon right. has said it's it just for a few people just for a few people just yeah. <laughs> Today I'm gonna be Liz Francis yeah. when I get bored. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be this podcast, I don't think, if uh, you know, Dan. If, if I really like that you mentioned the punishment drive, um, because I don't think it would really be this podcast if uh, I didn't read Hegel. And so <laughs> that's what uh, you were holding, Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that it was coming, but I didn't think I would be the one to elicit it. Actually. Well, I mean, you know, I had it, I had it all set up, but uh, it, 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 you, you, you really like glided straight into it perfectly. Um, yeah, but M Max is voice activated when it comes to Hegel. So yeah, there's, there are certain buzzwords we don't even know what they are. It's like Toy Story. But, you uh, pull the string, and I just go um, <laughs> to inf to bad infinity and beyond. Um, <laughs> but um. <laughs> but I, I've been reading, you know, through listeners of this show will know I've been reading through philosophy of right and just like the entire the entire Hegel like body of thought this summer and how, and, how big and now is that fall. Well, there's still science of logic to go, and that's a lot of pages. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's a lot. But um, recently, I was reading a, in the the section of philosophy of right called wrong. Ooh, negation. Um, which, right. <laughs> well, right. And there's a specific subsection called crime and coercion, which I think gets a little bit at some of like the roots of how thinking about the state and then thinking about opposing the state has developed throughout the left tradition in, in the West. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of want to frame this through what we talked about in the last episode, which to catch a few listeners up was essentially what Marx and Hegel's conception of value is as this sort of imminent material process of um, cu cultivating 
commodities and and the exertion of energy and then ultimately use right and this should be a familiar story to those who have read capital but there's this important sense that value is this inner bodily form right value is not a collective mm-hmm. social process right it becomes this sort of capitalistic process of numerical exchange and then ultimately comes yeah. a sort of all-encompassing it language. It spreads. Um, That's how it, it universalizes <laughs> as like a thing spreads. Right. Just too many right. numbers. Right. Just a lot of numbers. <laughs> and they're just like all over me. It's like, oh, get off now. We need, we yeah. need to, um. we do need to save some prisons for numbers to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, for Especially for the inflating, yeah, the inflated numbers. Um, There's just so many of them. But... They're getting bigger and bigger every day. <laughs> And, you know, like, and specifically with regards to this section, Foucault takes some of this stuff up later, right, on. But I kind of want to go back and reframe a little bit through thinking thinking with this MMT critique of value that we spelled out, right? That, that value is social before, right, before production. And it's primordially social and relational. And ultimately, there's this sense of, of, uh, of a sort of subjective agency-based process in, in cultivating what is socially valuable, right? And ulti- and what we would say is um, what is socially valuable is a question of right, right? Right doesn't come before value, which is how he- Hegel would structure it, and then ultimately thinking about justice um, through that lens, which is all to say that the origins, I think, of a sort of dialectical sense of crime and then punishment um, theoretically speaking, can be tied back, at least in part, at least analogically, to what Hegel has written about this. And so I wanted to read this so maybe we can explicate some of it and and think about really overturning retribution as a theoretical like construct. So yeah, I know it's a tough ask, but that's it's this podcast. So uh, so this um, is our hippie side. It's just like yeah. Pretty soon we're gonna do a little astrology, Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> um so max versus hegel volume 3007 but hegel hegel writes punishment as we have seen is only crime made manifest i.e is the second half which necessarily presupposes the first right so punishment is the negation of a crime mm-hmm Prima facie, the objection to retribution is that it looks something like something immoral, i.e. like revenge, and that thus it may pass for something personal. Yet it is not something personal, but the concept itself, right? This dialectical concept, right? Crime, which carries out retribution. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, as the Bible says. Beautiful. And if something... <laughs> and, if so- <laughs> and if something in the word retribution calls up the idea of a particular caprice of the subjective will, it must be pointed out that what is meant is only that the form which crime takes is turned around against itself. The Eumedes sleep, but crime awakens them, and hence it is one's own deed that asserts itself. Now, although requital cannot simply be made specifically equal to the crime, the case is otherwise with murder, which is of necessity liable to the death penalty. The reason is that since life is the full compass of human beings' existence, the punishment here cannot simply consist in a value, 
for none is great enough, but consists only in taking away a second life. And so there is this real sense, right? Theoretically, like dialectics is crime and retribution at work. And, and usually we can use like value, use fines, use uh, like time as a sort of stand-in for value, right? Mm-hmm. To to be a to reduce the transaction cost in trying to find this identical punishment for a crime, but in the case of death, there's a very there's an identical punishment which is death, and this is so fucked up, yeah. right? Like as a as a theoretical construct, mm-hmm. and I think it really gets at the root of this because right Hegelians would take this and say, well, great, the state. Absolutely, right? This isn't arbitrary revenge. This is just this is just retribution. This is just society. And leftists would take this and say, okay, now we need to punish. We just need to punish the right people. Right. Right? We need to punish the capitalists. And this is how this Mm -hmm. plays out. Leftists who are not working from a real abolitionist perspective. And so I think that's the spectrum that's 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 being cultivated in the imagination that your work and the tradition you draw upon is critiquing. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think this is where um, a lot of like transformative justice and restorative justice practitioners have been so sharp in distinguishing between crime and harm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that there's a lot of what gets yeah. sort of punished under crime that doesn't, that doesn't account for harm uh, on the one hand and uh, on the other hand, or at the same time uh, is also perpetuating harm, right? It's actively, willfully um, creating harm, right? Um, and, and, and in that passage you just read, we, we see the, the justification of that, right? There's not a, there's not a denial uh, of the harm that's caused. There's a, mm-hmm. there's, there's a celebration, yeah. right? There, there's a justification for, for the harm as, as being, you know, yeah. necessary in response to something. And this is, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that, um, that that there's something like embedded in that in that core logic that is is profoundly at odds with uh, with the world that we want. Right. That I think abolition is so um, is so strongly in pursuit of. And it, it tries to find like a material basis for the essence of what harm is. Right. Like the you know that's that's an eye for an eye right uh but of course the the harm is not just somebody dying the harm is social it's like profoundly social it's the spirit of history it's the the entire weight of history in this romantic justice is finding its uh culmination from the natural flow of crime and punishment you right. know? It's, like, <laughs> it's theological yeah. yeah yeah it's super it's super romantically theological yeah i, I mean and and obviously you know prison abolitionists and police abolitionists you know draw very directly on on the history of the abolition of slavery as as the framework um and i think we see you know if, if we can look, look back to hegel as the kind of you know, sort of germinal moment for uh, for understanding the sort of crime and punishment as a dialectic. Um, I think we can look back to the kind of um, original sort of movement to abolish slavery as as a rejection of that dialectic, right? Because the abolitionist mm-hmm. move was not we want to enslave plantation owners; <laughs> it was to eradicate the the whole relationship of slavery, right? the whole the whole existence of slavery, and to, to have to have a world that was not premised on those modes of abuse and, and and, and violence and exploitation, um, and so so I think even I mean I, I didn't quite think of it in those terms and, uh, until you read that passage, right? But I think we could see 
the history of abolition itself, uh, like always refusing that kind of, you know, like punishment for the right people mm. uh, sort of uh, approach. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny, like, I didn't sort of expect to necessarily go down this path, but the master-slave dialectic, you know, um, it, there are people who try and read the abolition of slavery through that, right? They try, you know, right. um, Susan Buck Morris has a book about Haiti, like Hegel and Haiti, yep. that, try and, that try and fit into this sense of history as this sort of dialectical movement of abolition. But ultimately, it's important to note that in Hegel's schema, someone is always a slave. Yeah, well, that's dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. And so, and he goes back to Greek times to, to prove this, right? And and so, and he finds freedom in a sort of perverse logic of slave, in, of the slave figure, right? And this is a profoundly Western gaze. There's always a Jeffrey Epstein. You always <laughs> right. have a Jeffrey Epstein. That's what's important. And that's how we will really move history um, forward and and yeah i mean like it i love i love this sort of counter reading like this sort of counter hegelian reading reading of abolition as a profoundly like non-zero sum uh movement for le liberation that rejects it in all forms because i don't think i mean at least for me it's not a surprise um even though one can be very nuanced about hegel that that there are right hegelians i mean you read the text it comes out right it comes out. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, but right, both like fascism and Marxism have Hegelian roots, yeah. right? <laughs> crucially, crucially, yeah. yeah. And, and, and where does Foucault come into that? Like when you, I feel like you were hinting at like Foucault having like some dialectical uh, like leftovers. I was curious what you're. Uh, you, you, you talking to, to me, Maddie? <laughs> um, um, I'm talking to anybody, but I was talking to you. <laughs> So, but, but, I mean, but I interrupted Will earlier, I mean, so it should be him. <laughs> maybe, maybe Dan could speak perhaps to this yeah. in a more nuanced way. Uh -huh. But I do, I mean, obviously there are, there are rejections of Hegel in Foucault, importantly mm. speaking, right? But I don't think, and so obviously we have this critique of crime as a, as this, as this dialectical concept. Um, but then it, it come, becomes concept itself that gets critiqued. And so I, I, I think totally correct impulses, at least on my reading, as sort of a, a cursory way of talking about this, right? And to push towards liberation in this way. But I, he, I think, crucially misses the fact that value is not what Hegel says value is, right? Mm -hmm. And is not what Marx says value is. And so there's not this positive political project of a jobs guarantee of a homes guarantee <laughs> through the spending yeah. through the spending mechanism that we mentioned and that you you spell out in your article with david stein yeah be, because ult ultimately the spending mechanism is reduced to value as uh as like you know this thing that has become universalized you know and kind of spread over the globe and then has been you know brought back in-house by the state right through, you know, in order for it to tax and spend and, and so on. Um, one of the things that I, that, that has been standing out to me um, the most, and I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm a grad student in media studies and um, one of the, Gross. I know it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Why do you hate workers? With it? Um, <laughs> uh yeah. So, um, as, oh, I just like got shivers. Oh as, as so as as I waste the taxpayers' time, uh, crystallized <laughs> in the money form. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the things that I've been um, that I've been thinking through is 
in film, there is this, uh, like the kind of golden age of Hollywood is defined by this, uh, basically aesthetics of trying to create like a continuity in space and time. Uh, so like if, if somebody walks, you know, into a building, they will, you know, cut to them in the lobby and then cut, you know, and, um, the idea is that it's supposed to feel, um, it's supposed to feel continuous and not show that there is the essentially like creative infinity of the editor, right? Because the editor can just cut to something totally different and totally disrupt that sense of continuity. So revealing that this is, you know, just a stylistic convention, um, which which comes about, you know, not to go on a huge tangent, but just for for really kind of specific historical reasons. Um, oh, and, and then the, the other part of that that I wanted to say was just, you know, this is the original modernist movements, right? You know, German Expressionists or French Impressionism, like they all are trying to show that no form is always there. We're going to flaunt it and like be really avant garde with it. Um, and I kind of see our intervention uh, in in this kind of like continuous space time physics of money, <laughs> right? Where like the money's over here. We have to, you know, tax it, and then we cut to spending, right? And then we show <laughs> how every step of the way... And I just bleed. I'm just bleeding everywhere. <laughs> Disgusting. You're just cutting um, me. Cutting me. <laughs> um, right. And so it's... it, But it, it's about creating this, this sense of uh, temporal continuity, right? Continuity through time that money is just moving through. Um, and because of that, right, they because they're so caught up in this aesthetics of continuity, not recognizing that we have the infinity of money, right? Like we can just spend we can we can cut to something else entirely, um, you know, which is not to say that, you know, there's not still material production and material transitions involved. But it certainly is not like this one to one, like we're going to you know, first we're going to convert prisons into this and then step three is, you know, and it's, it's much more discontinuous and it's much more all at once than that. Um, and that's, that's really what I see MMT as shattering in the, in the aesthetics of this liberal money form. And critically, this is what abolition calls on us to do, right? Like money has to be infinite in order to in order for us to properly imagine right and not in order for us to afford space for our imaginary to talk about you know what about the year 2050 right like right. what are what are things going to to be then and fundamentally um anything that exists right now is also uh currently being produced right now right there's nothing is just is just given Right. So there were choices that were made in the past for us to be circularly reproducing the things we're making today, prisons included. And yep. so we make decisions today to be circularly producing something in the future. And that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, a temporal transition. Sorry, well, you can have disruptions, too, like the way that naturalizing it doesn't have to be gradual. Like I know in Dan's piece, like he talked about um, or the collective talked about how the movements did get changed in California as far as like they stopped building new prisons and they stopped, uh, I don't know, that just the, that you can, you can intervene and they can stop or start or do different things, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think abolitionists are, are sort of constantly um, trying to, and sometimes successful at like interrupting the timeline. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. just, um, and, and I think 
it's it's often a question of sort of political power in terms of how how big the of of a disruption you you can make. But um, just to give a, a personal example, I used to live in in Philadelphia, um, and was a part of starting a, a group there called Decarcerate PA, and. Decarcerate started because the state was trying to build three new prisons and expand nine existing prisons. And that was a decision that had been made, you know, five years before the, I don't remember exactly how many, but several years before we started and several years before construction started because budget, the sort of, you know, the, the process of, of taking on a new building for the state is not like, it's not like you decide it today and, and construction starts tomorrow, right? So there were like specific things happening with of the state like blocking people's parole so people weren't getting out. So then they were overcrowding the prison. So then they said, okay, we need to expand our, the state's prison system. Like you can see that like chain of actions, like what, what you were saying, Will, about like the things happening today that reproduce something five, 10, 50 years from now. And yet by the time that we started, um, you know, it, uh, it was a sort of different political context in which we were able to build a pretty massive coalition. And even though, even though it wasn't, we didn't have, we didn't have the sort of power and the time to stop some of those uh, prisons from being built. Like we, we, you know, the, I mean, it, it was a sort of Tea Party governor of Pennsylvania at that time, and and that year, 2012, like he was the only of the Tea Party governors who didn't get reelected, and I think it was because there were very strong movements in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh that were pointing out all of these, you know, resources going to prisons that weren't going to schools and healthcare, um, that I think actually made a material difference, right? And 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 that subsequently seeded other kinds of organizing campaigns that um, some of which continued to this day uh, around ending life without parole and and um, uh, stopping local jail construction that that was successful in Philadelphia, right? So I think there are these things about yeah again about about sort of planning and context where where those sort of disruptions can take place. Um, I also think there is. Um, that, that like the history of mass incarceration of like this relatively quick boom in prison building and prison construction is is a sort of objective like proof of of money's in, infiniteness right <laughs> because sure, the, yeah. the very people yeah. saying we can't afford this and we can't afford that um and you know reagan talking about you know wanting to drown government in a bathtub like those are the people who grow government exponentially through you know greater funds resources and authority for police prisons and the military um and so i think we we've just and i so i think there it's it's no surprise that you know we have we have various kinds of flowerings of, of abolition throughout the 20th century but it's no surprise that it it's become so 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 big and so so popular in the last two decades because these are sort of generations of people who are shaped by the supreme gap between this idea that we can't pay for things and and the sort of scarcity logic with the the mm -hmm. objective reality that you know when it comes to to the apparatus of repression there's no there's no such thing as scarcity right <laughs> there's a sort of I infinite resources and infinite growth um that seems sort of uh, that that we that we've lived through right? yeah that's it's really beautifully said and i think um from here it could be useful for us then to think about maybe at a more meta level what it means to advocate for this sort of vision in our world today and i you know i 
necessarily of course mean like active what some would call like on the ground organizing which uh, is certainly a crucial component of of all of this mm-hmm. i love the ground <laughs> uh natty aka dasha um, is definitely on the ground um (laughs) you can see she's on the ground so far she's in the grave yeah (laughs) our resident our resident base correspondent um, (laughs) but i i think i think we wanted to also talk about what it means to try and do not only academic work but also popular you know, a sort of popular scholarship advocating for abolition and then sort of relatedly this sort of vision um, that you outline, right, in, in this recent piece with with David um, about sort of really leveraging the power of, of the infinite power of money to, to cultivate a world and to, to transform a world and to abolish a set of practices in the world. And, you know, I think there, there was a... a not too long ago, and you can correct me, but there was a, a, a spat <laughs> in, in uh, one could call it, in, you know, actually, well, a few years ago now, but uh, in... There was a dialectic. There yeah. was a di- <laughs> there you go. This is a descent yeah. spat? Another war over at descent? <laughs> no, Another... no, not descent. Not, not in these uh, times. It's not the Iraq war period. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but there was a, there was a sort of, uh, a, a sort of, discussion one could say a dialogue in in jacobin that you participated in on abolition where um there was an article by roger lancaster um called how to end mass incarceration that really critiqued this abolitionist vision um and you know i think will maybe had some some things to read from it so as we set this up yeah i i wanted to read from uh roger lancaster's response to uh your response which... But but before that, can we just sort of set the scene a little bit? So Max Max said like like Roger wrote this piece, how to end mass incarceration. Um, David Stein, Miriam Kaba, and I wrote a piece called What Abolitionists Do, uh, and and I'm sure we'll get into this. But but you know we we called our piece that because we were all. Um, and not just the three of us, but a, a larger we uh, were all aghast uh, at at the piece because it it just had such little um, engagement with, little representation of, little bearing on what abolitionists actually do. And so it felt like his original piece was a sort of straw man invention to say, well, abolition is is unfeasible and undesirable. Um, And here's why, without actually saying like, like what abolitionists do um and so so i think it was important for us to actually you know respond not only to the kind of to the sort of theoretical or intellectual aspects but also just to how out of touch uh a piece aiming to be a kind of broadside critique like well we can have that debate but you know we got to have it based on like uh, (laughs) like the same sort of sense of, of the world that that was so shocking about his piece sorry i just felt i felt the need to like it, <laughs> just set that up before you absolutely no yeah, totally love that yeah. this is like cathar- i see everybody's face right now yeah, with, like, we're, we're loving this like, oh, um, yes. but but also if, if will is going to be playing the part of roger <laughs> lancaster i would invite someone else to play the part of dan berger and david Slan <laughs> in the conversation 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good thing we have uh, one of those authors here with us. But I, I have to, there's one quote from the original piece that I just have yeah, to, yeah. I have to say because it is so on the nose exactly what we have been critiquing in this podcast um, since mm-hmm. since day one. And so Lancaster writes, we should strive not for pie-in-the-sky imaginings, but for working models already achieved in Scandinavian and other social democracies. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, pie-in-the-sky uh, is, I just, you know, we are, we're officially branding ourselves on this podcast. We are the pie-in-the-sky podcast. Uh, we have our we have our mm-hmm. eyes set firmly on the baked goods in the sky. Scandinavians have the best pies, though. Did you I, know that? Though? I did not know that. I do know in German there's no <laughs> word for pie. Um, but anyway, no, they just have the black zero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they just have balanced budgets in the on the ground. <laughs> so this is. Uh... Another kind of random thing that's so funny about the phrase pie in the sky is that it um, it I'm pretty sure was Joe Hill or uh, it, it was an IWW uh, slogan and they meant it in the way that Max just meant it to like, you know, embrace it like, yes, this is pie in the sky like we we want the world. So, yeah, um, seeing that mobilized in that way is uh, frustrating. It's like Hillary Clinton with ponies. Like we <laughs> yeah. can't we can't afford to give people ponies. Yeah. I want yeah. a pie more than pragmatic. ponies. I I would like that first, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I know we're, this is like a long parenthetical that we're doing, before, and we're like, it's like becoming a gag, just preventing Will from reading this quote. But I will, <laughs> yeah, but, sure. but, but but I will just add, like, for it, it's it's especially shocking for a political project who who looks uh, as its figurehead to Eugene Debs. Because Debs, yeah. to, to, to then make these kind of arguments, because Debs was a total abolitionist and Debs was was all about this, like, all things are possible kind of orientation. Um, and, and to see, you know, I mean, uh, like, they never miss an opportunity to, to, to mark a, like, anniversary related to Debs. <laughs> so just, like, yeah. periodically, they'll be like, before Bernie Sanders, there was Eugene Debs. Like, there's just all yeah. those kinds of things. It's like, okay, like, so let's engage with Debs, right? Like, let's engage with Debs, the abolitionist. Like, let's engage with Debs, the political prisoner. Like, let, there's a lot there. Yeah, love that. Not Debs, the the first socialist who would have been 154 years old today. Happy birthday, Eugene Debs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... I can't wait for Bernie's 154th birthday <laughs> yeah. celebration. That will be fun. I mean, I, what I can't help about this is there's sense. I mean, I think it's connected and now we're now it's really a gag. Um, but I think it's connected to this sense of like, you know, really all we can ever ask for as socialists is a lazy boy in a Scandinavian prison and a computer. <laughs> Right. Like that, that is socialism. Yeah. Right. That yeah. is, that is the UBI fully, like fully base reductive sense of socially necessary provisioning universalized at the lowest mm-hmm. common denominator because we can't afford anything else. And for prisons, right. We all should just live yeah. in a prison that's more humane than our prisons essentially is what's being articulated that's and called shocking. school yeah that brings us back to Foucault actually um, yeah. but, <laughs> uh, so I mean um, one of the things that that struck me Dan um, as as you were setting up your article uh, is this idea like what do abolitionists do 
the the charge that um you know gets made implicitly uh and explicitly and why we call the podcast superstructure right um is that there there's material actions and then there's words and imagination right um and because abolitionists are talking in the future tense that must mean that it's just words right that it right. it must not be connected to a material idea and that's that's you know also like their response to you is the word on words right or a word on words right. um, is you know this is right. this yeah. is the the idea that like unless you're talking about you know um what are we going to do you know our tax dollars are going to mediate like turning this prison into a best buy or something um then like you know, we're not talking about anything material. It's just words. It's just ideas. It's just superstructure. And yeah, so prison abolition as opposed to sustained prison reform. Uh, right. So I, I also I just want to point out the continuity aesthetics through time. Right. Like you yeah. want <laughs> you want abolition that's pie in the sky. I want a sustained prison reform project <laughs> sustained through time it's we're gonna you know yep. it'll be a first person prison reformer game um Re revolution is famously uh protracted throughout time yeah. there aren't these big events yeah. that happen ever well, um, right. <laughs> uh uh so prison abolition as opposed to sustained prison reform is one of a number of slogans that cultivate a strong in-group sense of rightness and morality but hobble the socialist left and render it ineffective. So that's the other buzzword is morals, morals, right? And morality and you know, you're just your virtue signaling. That's so weird like when they're like you're just you're just doing just justice isn't enough. It's like what? I feel like that would be good though. It would be yeah. <laughs> Both the, the the like morality charge and the sort of sneering charge of morality but also like the the <laughs> effectiveness uh, charge is just astounding yeah. to me that you know to, to write something in <clears throat> i think that was 2017 that that exchange um mm -hmm. but to write something you know after several years of uh, of sort of major uprisings that had very strong abolitionist yeah. anchors and obviously now we're having this conversation you know after a summer of what many have said is the largest uh, series of, of of protests the u.s has ever seen that was very directly speaking as abolitionist prose um and obviously you know i i, I won't fault Lancaster for not dealing with 2020 and 2017 but um but but it was happening in 2017 right there was a lot happening at that time which I think was was the kind of unacknowledged and and semi-acknowledged backdrop for that piece right there were debates in DSA about you know should there be uh should you know should, should they endorse abolition um and so on <clears throat> and it's just astounding to me that that people will sort of throw this charge of uh, of you know abolition is unrealistic and and ineffective and that's why we should look towards Swedish social democracy <laughs> uh, which the US has never had instead of looking to abolition which comes directly out of an experience <laughs> in the United States right um, and and I mean in the Americas more broadly yeah. right? but but I think if we want to talk about kind of histories that we can draw from uh, abolition it has a deeper root 
in the American context than than Scandinavian sort of political economy does, <laughs> um, and I think offers more hopeful ways forward than sort of settling for <laughs> for what for what a sort of northern European countries can do. And you're you're a historian, so tell us no, uh, but, uh, <laughs> tell us everything. No, but but who are some of like the your abolitionists? I mean, I know you've written like interesting things on all different movements, like in the '60s, '70s, and then you edited this book coming out about decades of movements but like I don't know talk a bit about what are some of that's a big question but like what are some of these sort of American or America's traditions and people that we want to draw from yeah I mean I think if we want to think about uh, uh, about abolition I mean I think there's a lot within uh, obviously we we talked um, earlier about the uh, movement to abolish slavery I think there's a lot in in a Marxist radical labor tradition like the wobblies that that will was mentioning and others um and and debs mm-hmm. um that were talking about you know various kinds of uh abolishing the wage form abolishing capitalism right? i think there are these various sort of abolitionist currents that that one could really um weave throughout the history of not just american radicalism but american radicalism um that that i think are you know um conversant with or like could fit within a like Marxist paradigm about building the new world in the shell of the old um that that again is just surprising to see this and and a surprising see I'm like clutching my pearls whatever it's frustrating to see a, a, <laughs> a, a socialist publication sort of consistently take these stands against sort of popular U.S. social movements that come specifically uh, from a, like black feminist radical uh, tradition that come from incarcerated people yeah. that come from um, sort of some some of the most sort of precariously employed workers and most precariously employed uh, people in the economy that exists, and, and instead to to offer as the sort of height of of effectiveness uh, some like Scandinavian mm-hmm. social democracy is just like you know it's sort of my, <laughs> like my, kind of mind blowing. <laughs> Famous for its attentiveness to uh, histories of and legacies of racism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, there, there's a way in which I think abolition was um, was part of the socialist project and, and particularly of a sort of black uh, socialist and anti-imperialist project in mm-hmm. the 1970s um, in ways that I think were... Um, were sort of secondary, like the, like people would have called themselves socialists and said, as a socialist or as a revolutionary or as a fill in the blank, like yeah. I, we need to like abolish prisons, right? One one of the things, one of the documents that that we included in um, this book that that you mentioned, Natty, that I co-edited with my friend Emily Hobson, um, called "Remaking Radicalism," which is a primary source reader of writings by U.S. social movements in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, is a an op-ed that appeared in um, or an editorial rather that appeared in the feminist magazine Off Our Backs uh, after the Attica Rebellion and after a, a sort of lesser-known rebellion at Alderson, which is a federal women's prison. Um, that that is about abolition. That's about prison abolition, right? And it's a awesome document that's totally you know still still very relevant and and exciting to read. I think actually Miriam Kaba. Um, posted it on her website uh, many years ago. So I think it, it's available uh, already on, online. Um, I think it's called How Many More. Um, mm. right, so we're saying like how many more how many more prisoners are going to be killed, how many more people are going to be slaughtered, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you can see like the idea of abolition emerging like 
organically at that time period within uh, within this kind of broad sort of um, what, what, what we might now call sort of in intersectional movements um, among sort of radical feminists and anti-racist and and um, and sort of anti-prison activists. And I think what's happened in the last twenty years is that abolition has become has become the sort of superseding apparatus, right? So it's not it's not as a socialist mm -hmm. I believe in abolishing prisons. It's it's as an abolitionist like I believe in socialism, right? <laughs> like I th I think yeah. they sort of flipped That's in really this nice way. way of putting it. Um, yeah, yeah. That I think yeah. speaks to a lot of things. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and and also just that like you know speaking of that that sort of pairing and inversion, I I think it's um it's worth setting up uh also that like this this exchange in in jacobin is you know in 2017 uh they're thinking in terms of the bernie campaign right and they're they're thinking in terms of bernie's second run and very much there's there's a calculation that's you know that that i think is uh you know sort of you read between the lines there's like is abolition going to be a liability for the bernie movement right um and are we going to alienate the, you know, the ordinary people, right? But because again, there's there's this, you know, ignoring that for a second that that's like a dog whistle. Um, yep. there, there also is uh, this kind of present tense, presently embedded, you know, like they're looking at today's polling, right? Um, you know, e even though, you know, that's not a fair way to look at any historical movement that has successfully, you know, gotten right. changed because they, yeah. they always start out like that. Yeah. Nate Silver for the left. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and I think that like now, right, Bernie's second run is over. And in the wake of that second run, which in the kind of abolition exclusive interpretations of American socialist histories that like try to cleanly separate abolition from from socialism and say that abolition is you know not fundamentally part of the socialist project the socialist project needs to look to jeremy corbyn and right. scandinavia um bernie's loss in that framework was like well that was the one chance that the left got right. you know the left gets a right. chance every 40 years when there is yep. a crisis of capitalism <laughs> and you know and but but in fact, what we what we saw is like just months after Bernie drops out of the race, people are talking about abolition at yep. their kitchen table. You know, like this is right. this is huge. You know, and I say, you know, kitchen table a little bit uh, tongue in cheek here to to continue yeah. the normal people uh, <laughs> yeah. dog What um, type of tables do you prefer, Will? Do you have a different type of table? What type of table do you students want? Students in their kitchen tables. Uh, Picky on this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I I don't have a kitchen table for what it's worth. And in fact, Bernie's response to that was 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 not great, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? That, uh, his response was about more more funding and more training for police, which is exactly that same, you know, that same sort of like I infinite feedback loop of sustained prison reform that that is embedded in that Lancaster quote. Like what what is yeah. more funding and more training for police but the sustained prison reform project that we've been in for for, you know, 
certainly decades, but really, you know, <laughs> since the birth of the prison. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, Foucault has that line, like the prison reform is, uh, reform is, is coterminous with prison itself. It constitutes its program, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's not quite verbatim, but yeah. Um, but the spirit is there. We expect uh, you to be able to always get all your Foucault <laughs> quotes verbatim, perfect, yes. off the dome to come on this podcast. So I wish you had mentioned before that you might make some Foucault yeah. mistakes. Well, and I will also say on this like prison reform, Scandinavian social democracy front, like there's a moment in in the last 50 years uh, whenever the, the like legislators discover that prisons are these racist, violent, abusive institutions and then incarcerated people rise up and then someone says we have to do something about it there is so, someone then says let's take a trip to europe like let's see how they do it and like as as you know a lot of my scholarly work is on the 60s and 70s and so i've like read a lot about these different trips that happen um but then to see in the last five or ten years like so, you know, the the children of the politicians who went 50 years ago are now organizing their own trips, right? Or or scholars are going to Sweden to mm -hmm. see how they lock people up, and then doing these videos on some you know box uh, or whatever, to, like to say, look, here yeah. I went inside a German prison, and like look at what I saw. Yeah. Like we don't. This is how they log on <laughs> yeah, to Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> and like uh, in some of the, you know, writing that I've done or, or just some of the like angry tweeting that I've done at, at state officials, it's like we, we don't need any more trips to Norway. Like we know all of the all of the problems are not new. All of the solutions are not new. Like we, right. we need like fewer prisons. Uh, we need we don't need people in prison. We don't need prisons like that's what we need to do. Um, and there's a, like a lot of ways that we could do that right now. And, and as we've been saying, like there's a lot of things that we can build now that will help us like sustain that as a sort of permanent project. Um, but it's just like, again, like for, for Lancaster or others to say like, oh, we should like look at what Norway's doing. Look at what Sweden's doing. It's like we've been looking like we know what they do. <laughs> like that's not like, that's not the model. And it's a right? slap in the face. It's a slap in the face to black radical traditions. That's right. I mean that's right. yeah, that's yeah. what yeah. the bottom well, and, line is. And more yeah. I mean the the you know, we're talking about some of the like like the the golden oldies with Lancaster, right? Like Jacobin has published several other pieces by um, uh, I forget their first names, but Clegg and and Us Usmeni uh, on on uh, sort of everything you know about mass incarceration is wrong was the title of one of them. Um, that actually David Stein and and Jack Norton just wrote a really great uh, response to in Spectre Journal called Materializing Race. Um, but you know, mm -hmm. just to treat this this you know this movement that has been so so connected to to a black radical tradition, a black feminist tradition, and and come at it with everything you know is wrong, uh, and then to come with this analysis that is full of dog whistles, is full of of just the worst kind of like economic re economically reductive thinking. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It is is a real slap in the face, right? And and to and do that in the context of like popular mass movements that are actually winning things is like even more yeah. uh, gratuitous. And I'm so glad you mm -hmm. also like mentioned this, you know, there seems to be a, a trend, one could call it, of Jacobin, you know, cultivating a space for what they would call, I'm sure, debate that has editorial mm -hmm. structures that are embedded within it, right? And this, I think, is, you know, to to read perhaps abolition as a sort of 
structural logic and a structural logic for struggling and, and transformation, I think it's important to say that, you know, Will's point about editors before, I think, like in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the cinematic sense, really actually yeah. can speak for this too here, right? And, and you know, I'm like literally we'll, we're dating this but literally yesterday right glenn greenwald resigned from the intercept citing editorial censorship what one might call editing yeah. right? i mean you know not to not to talk too much about how dare you max he's an american hero <laughs> yeah no ed- editing editing is supposed to be like when you bite into a piece of gold to check if it's real you're not actually yeah. supposed to like. You're not supposed to change anything. You just fact check things. You're just checking right. its veracity. Um, yeah. But you know, and to really like to put aside the specifics of it, because I couldn't care less about those. <laughs> I think the point here is is that you know, given also recent debates about like, you know, people have been coming to the defense of Jacobin in albeit ways that like, because there were bad faith critiques of Jacobin, totally. right? That shouldn't even be voiced mm-hmm. here necessarily, but um, that people were coming to the defense of Jacobin to essentially say, Jacobin is what we have, Yeah. right? This is what we have and we should be thankful that we have it. The left right? is a family and also MMT is a cult. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and so, and there's this sense that like, yes, it's imperfect, Yes, sometimes it publishes dog whistles. Sometimes it slaps black radical traditions in the face. (laughs) But it's what we have, and it's better than nothing, right? But I think to really take on this sense of, like, what could be. Like, Mm -hmm. what could we have Mm -hmm. to to really think about? And, you know, what could we fund? And what, what, what do we want is to not let these sorts of logics of editing because that's what these are right yeah, totally. guide us mm-hmm. right g- g- and and be naturalized we need to push back at them too because ultimately we need to have and and have fa- facilitate mass the mass production of these ideas in order to facilitate the organizing yeah. and you know to to come back to the greenwald thing there's this assumption that either you accept the structures like the intercept or like jacobin for what they are or you go out on your own. You go without editors. You go to Substack right. and you go to to Patreon. But, you know, and then you all of a sudden learn that platforms have structural logics. And, oh, no, <laughs> right. now I'm a neoliberal with taxpayers <laughs> yeah. of my own, you know, right. and, and exactly. writing for my taxpayers. And, and, and this, the cycle goes onward and onward. And I think taking abolitionism back at this question, at the, at the question of its meta logics and its meta mediums of how it's promoted, really strikes so like strikes so resonant with this particular debates which you're participating in. Yeah, I mean that that I think is is the the genius of of defund the police as a slogan and to see right. like mass uprisings mm-hmm. speak with a kind of coherent framework and a coherent message is 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 actually quite rare, right? I mean, I think, you know, there are lots of comparisons to the urban rebellions of the 1960s and, you know, they were very clearly responding to to racial capitalism and police violence, but but there wasn't like a demand um, in the ways that we saw this summer, right, with defund the police emerge like quickly and and clearly. Um and I I think that that's that's the genius of it for all of the like pushback, uh, including from you know sort of liberal com li- liberal pundits and even some left pundits, 
you know, saying that it, that it was a bad slogan or it's an unclear slogan, I think what they were saying was, I disagree with the slogan, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and I think, yeah. like, the clarity of it is, is exactly allows us to have that conversation of, like, okay, like, if you, like, we can talk about what you disagree with, like, that's fine. Um, and I think there's a way mm -hmm. in which, you know, a lot of people who have been sort of politicized in the in the last, you know, two to five years, have only known this certain kind of cycle right? <laughs> where, where, where Bernie seem yeah. like the horizon of the left, yeah. right? Or where, um, or, or, or AOC, right? It, it seemed like the horizon of the mm -hmm. left. And, and what I think the um, uprisings of the summer have shown is like, there's a, there's a much wider horizon, you know, c come join us, right? <laughs> there's like a lot of other things that are possible. Um, and in fact, like there's a lot of other things that people have been doing, right? I mean, defund the police didn't just emerge, you know, like full, what is that fully formed out of the head of Zeus or whatever, right? Like right. it emerged from longstanding <laughs> campaigns that people were, were engaged in longstanding organizing. Um, and I think what we saw is like some, some publications and some venues and some pundits who, who were used to like thinking that they occupied the like lefternmost space, um, or at least trying to occupy the lefternmost space, um, then, then found like a very vocal, a very active, you know, much like bigger, perhaps like space to their left. Um, and I think, you know, I think it, it's actually revealing or tumbling. It's like fill in the blank, like how, 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 how people choose to respond to like realizing that like the position that they occupied is not actually as stable as they, uh, as they seemed. Right, I think is um, is is productively clarifying. I'm 
scale of sliding sun, to a fluster of surprise, to a flutter of distant cries. Further anticipation is this chaotic wonder, holding tongue with more loose Thoughtless lust, to a transport of giddy joy, and a whisper of manic mirth. 